Well, hello, everyone. I'm your host, Colton Prater, and this is the Fire Zone Revival Podcast. And as always, I'm honored that you would take the time to listen to today's episode. And for today's episode, we are continuing on with part two of our interview with pastor and church planter Nick White to Boston, Massachusetts. And I would encourage you that if you haven't listened to part one, I would encourage you to pause this part here, this episode, go listen to part one, and then pick back up here with part two, because part two will make a lot more sense having listened to part one to find out his backstory and how he came to know Christ as his Savior and answer the call to preach and all that and so forth. But if you have listened to part one, thank you for doing so, and I would encourage you to share it with someone, maybe a friend or an acquaintance, a sibling, parent, whatever, and share it with someone and then finish listening here with part two and maybe share it with someone else as well and review the podcast and rate it and so forth. But without further ado here, we'll open up with a word of prayer and then jump into part two of our interview with pastor and church planter Nick White. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity again, Father, for us to record this broadcast for people. And ask that you use it, Father, to be a blessing to Christians across the world that are listening to it. That you use it to impact countless people, Father. That you just use this to help, as I said earlier in the last broadcast in the prayer, to maybe light a fire in someone's heart, Father, and give them a burden for the northeast, uh, northeastern region of the United States. And that you just use this, Father, Father, to maybe burden someone for church planning or being a missionary or just reaching people, Father, in general, in soul winning and evangelism and so forth. But just please use this interview, I pray. Thank you for allowing us to record it again. And in your son's name, amen. Hey, how are you doing, Pastor White? Good. How are you? Can you hear me well? Yes, sir, I can. Can you hear me well? I can, yeah. Good. Awesome. I'm doing good. Um, thank you for taking time out of your day to do the interview. I know it means a lot to me. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, it's my pleasure, man. I'm 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 privileged to be able to come on. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, we'll just go ahead and jump into the interview here. I just got a couple questions for you. We'll find out about who you are and so forth in your ministry. But sure. do you mind telling the audience how you came to know Christ as your Savior? Yeah, I came to know Jesus at a very young age. I was I was five years old, and it was Christmas, and I was coloring a page with Jesus, baby Jesus in a manger, and I just had questions about who he was and what it was all about. My mom answered those questions, and I saw that I was in need of a Savior, and I got saved at five years old on Christmas. So that's that's how I got saved. Pretty simple, but just as a young boy, uh, my mom was the one who led me to Jesus. So. Oh, wow. That's powerful there. Praise the Lord. And one thing I love that you mentioned, just like the simplicity of just the asking questions about what you were coloring there. I know that when I was younger, I got saved when I was six, and it was as a direct result. I was asking my parents question about, questions about what baptism was, and they answered yeah. those questions, and I asked more, and I asked them what salvation was, and they answered that. And like you said, just coloring a little Christmas thing and then asking them questions, and then you ended up getting saved as a result of it. Yeah, it is neat amen. just to see, to see how that works out there. But do you mind telling the audience how you also uh, answered the call to preach? I know you're a pastor, so obviously you'd have to be a preacher to do that. So could you maybe yeah. tell us how you answer the call to preach? Yeah, for sure. So when I was um, when I was 15 years old, I was at a summer camp, and uh, this was a time in my life where, as a teenager, I wasn't super interested in God or church. Um, I was more interested in in myself and Nick White, and my life revolved around myself and. And I know that's the case for a lot of teenage boys, but you know, for me, it was just I, I was very disengaged. I wasn't necessarily on fire for God. Uh, at the same time, I still had faith in God. I still believed in God. And we were asked, me and one of my good friends uh, at that time, were asked to go to this summer camp. 
and we heard that there was going to be sports and that there was going to be girls and that's all we needed to hear <laughs> and hook line and sinker we went and um you know first few nights of preaching it was just torture i, I didn't like mm -hmm. it i hated it and there was there was preaching three times a day and they just it felt like they were just shoving preaching down our throats we, we couldn't stand mm -hmm. it and we couldn't even sit with the girls the guys were on one side and the girls were on the other side and and then the girls wore like these things called culottes and we didn't even understand any and we were just confused and man it was just it was just a weird time and the culture was a little bit different than what i was used to but what started to happen is the lord started to work on my heart and uh, brother tom farrell evangelist was preaching oh, wow. And he was preaching his his testimony on how he was called to preach. And that night, I knew that I was being called by God to preach the gospel. And it was just, you know, a lot of people, they ask, they say, you know, Nick, how, how do you know? How do you know if God's calling? You just know. There's no story that you can just base it off of. My story is different than your story. Your story is different than someone else's story. We just know that God called us, and, and it's just something that you can't get away from. And I knew that God was calling me. I didn't want to surrender to preach, and I didn't. I refused to. I, I knew what that would cost. I, I had my own ambitions, my own dreams for my life, and I didn't want to go in the ministry. I didn't want to do anything like that. I wanted to do my thing. And we had one more day one more service before it was all over. So I just told myself, well, I've, if I could just get through this last service, then then I'll be okay. Well, as it got closer and closer to that time, to that service, you know, I came up with a really bright idea. I decided, well, I'm, I'm just going to play sick. So I'm going to just get in my cabin. I'm going to lay down. I'm going to say I have a fever. I don't feel well. And, uh, you know, thank God my cabin counselor handed me – two uh, Tylenol pills and said, you're going to be fine. Let's go. Just come with me. You'll be okay. And so I, I ended up being forced to go to that last service. And I did not enjoy the service. Uh, I, I was tortured the whole time. People were clapping and singing songs and they're throwing candy everywhere. And I was just, I hated it. I wasn't happy. I wasn't clapping. I wasn't singing. I was mad. That I even had to be there, and at the end of the service, there's an invitation given, and I just thought, well, I'm so convicted. I'm so – I just feel so pressured to make a decision. I'm, I refuse. I, as long as I can get through this invitation time, I'll be good. I'll be okay, and I did. I made it through the invitation time, and I thought, man, that's it. I'm never going to one of these things ever again. And the youth director, the director of the of the whole camp, got up mm -hmm. and and he said, "God's not done yet." And he said, "Let's let's keep this invitation going." And it went on for another forty five minutes. And I I just knew that this is it. This is why the invitation is being extended. So I just I went to the altar and I just said, "All right, Lord." But I knew my heart. And one of the things that I said, this is a little unusual. You know, some may even think it's a little weird, but I just decided, you know. I, I know my heart. I know how I am in the sense where I, I knew that if I go back to normality, I go back to the, the world that I lived in every single day, not camp world, but the, the real world, and I was back with all of the same friends and the same atmosphere, I knew 
that I would want to go back on the decision I made. But I was so certain that that's what God wanted me to do with my life that I even told the Lord. I said, Lord, if I if I stray from this calling, if I if I go back on this, then I want you to take my life. And I, I just made it as concrete as I possibly could mm. so that I would stick with it because, I mean, it's either life or death. It, it's a mm. life or death thing. And and I, I just told the Lord, you take my life if I ever go back on that. And there's been times in my life where I have really wanted to go back on that decision uh, when I got a little later on in the teenage years, about 18 years old. Even after I went to Bible college for a year, I went to Bible college for a year, hated it, and I, I just – I left, and I thought, this is it. It's just not for me. I didn't do well at that Bible college. I broke a lot of rules. I got in a lot of trouble, and I just – you know what? This isn't for me, and I wanted to quit. I got a job. I started dating a girl who was secular, and, and I just – you know, I started to work, and but but deep down inside, it was like, if you head down this path, it's your life. If you keep going this direction, it's going to cost your life. And the Lord was so gracious with me, working on me, and I started to get back on the right track. And I, I just decided to submit to the Lord and, and to stay surrendered to that. And I ended up going to a different college then and uh, graduated, was able to meet my wife there, and I uh, was able to work. So yeah, I, I met my wife at Bible College, and I served on staff at a church, and and uh, then that brings us to where we are today. I just followed God's calling and ended up here in, in the greater Boston area. Awesome. Praise the Lord there. As you said that you were in Boston and everything, um, as a pastor there, do you mind uh, sharing how you ended up there? I, I don't know if you've always had a burden for that region, or maybe God just began to change your desires, maybe and open some doors or whatever it is. I don't know. Can you just kind of share? How you ended up in Boston, Massachusetts there as a pastor of a church. Yeah, so um, God God really just gave me a desire to reach the Northeast. I didn't know where in the Northeast, but I knew that I would be going to the Northeast. I was born and raised in New Jersey, and then my senior year of high school, uh, we moved from New Jersey to West Virginia. And uh, the place is wild and wonderful. But it wasn't wild and wonderful for me because we were not used to that kind of culture. We were used to very different culture, and, and we were like, what's wrong with these people? Everyone's going to Walmart in their pajamas. Like, we're not used to this stuff. It, it's just a different world for us. And when we moved, I, I, I was sure, I was certain that we were going to come back to the Northeast, or at least I was. And... It was obviously something that I prayed about when when I told you that I, I resubmitted. There was that time where I got a little bit away in my later teen years, 18, 19 years old, and I just thought, you know, I'm going to just live my life the way I want to. And I submitted to God again, and God started to speak to my heart about the Northeast. I started to pray about it. Where, where would God have me go? And and I, I thought, well, it, it'll probably be a few years before I know that. I'll just uh, I'll keep praying about it and follow God's leading and as he leads then I'll just I'll submit and but God spoke to my heart really as a young man before I even went to the second Bible college before I tried Bible college for a second time and what happened was God spoke to my heart about Boston I started to look into Boston I started to be burdened for Boston and how little of gospel witness there is and I just decided, okay, well, I guess that's where I'm just going to go. I'm going to go. And I went to Bible college, and I was always submitted. Um, there was even a time in Bible college where I thought, 
maybe God was calling me to something else. Uh, I, I felt uneasy about going to Boston for a little bit, and I think God was just trying to reset my heart, retune it, so that I'm not totally dependent on myself, and so that I'm totally dependent on Him. I'm not going ahead of God and making plans ahead of God, even though I know where I'm going, but that I would just rest in God's leading and guiding and just wait on God for that. And So there's a time where I thought maybe I was called somewhere else. I started to pray about it, fast about it, but God just made it clear that He wanted me in Boston. And it was really just made clear by a burden and a desire and I, I just believe if you're walking with God and your heart is tuned to God's heart uh, through the Holy Spirit, through submission, and through being dead to self, I, I just believe that God will give you the desires of his heart. And God's desires are not to be ignored. They're be, to be pursued. And uh, I just believe that God gave me that desire. I could not get away from it to go to Boston and paired with a burden, obviously. And so that's that's how I believe it, it all happened. It all went down. And then when I graduated, uh, we came up here, and we did not come to start a church. We actually came originally to take a church. And we uh, got plugged into that church there, and, and things kind of just – it didn't really necessarily work out for us. And, um, you know, we ended up just kind of being on the ropes in ministry. We were still living up here in Massachusetts, and we didn't know, man, does God want me to start a church? I thought God was calling me to Boston. You know, does he want me to start a church or take a church? And, and what is it? I knew that God still wanted me there in Boston. And, I, you know, I figured that out in my Christian life, and I think we sometimes figure it out. God will put a desire in our heart. God will lead us down a path. Sometimes we may stumble a little bit, and we'll we'll try and feel around, and and we'll have to run into some closed doors before we finally go through the one God has for us. And I, I feel like once you get on the right track, God does that leading, guiding through His grace. And there were some decisions that we made that we we could have prayed more about, and there were things that we did originally that we should have probably fasted more about, but. We are thankful that God is gracious, that God is good, and that in leading us, he, he led us to start a church. And I just believe that's what God wanted us to do, that he wanted us to start a church, and we just followed God's leading. We started to raise support. We started to uh, pick a city in Boston. Boston's built uh, with about 70 principal cities and towns. Oh, wow. and. It's it's the sixth largest metro area in the world, and we just we just started to pray about an area with an area that large. There, there's got to be a town we would go to, and God sent us to a town of Boston called Dedham, and it's D E D H A M, and that's where we started the church. So about two years ago, we started that church, and it's been going ever since, and been reaching people, seeing people saved, and give God all the glory for that. But that's that's basically how all that went down. Well, praise the Lord. Wow, that was very powerful there, just changing desires and ending up in West Virginia and then Massachusetts and everything changing yeah. there. And piggybacking off of that, what do you think is a uh, – what's a spiritual lesson that God taught you during that time is and has taught you so far as a church planner? Yeah, so huh, pride and, and humility. I mean as a young guy, let's be real, sometimes, especially in early 20s, we just think we know everything. And man, it's so foolish for us to do that, it, to be in our early 20s, to just graduate out of college and all of a sudden think, well, I'm special, meaning I'm, I'm going to be the, 
the difference. When I go up to Boston, I, all these – this is how it was in my head, and I'm just being transparent. When I go up to Boston, mm-hmm. all these other pastors who've been there for 20, 30 years, they don't see much growth in their church, but I'll be different. I'll be di- – it'll be different for me because I'm special. Mm-hmm. Boy, boy, does God get rid of that. When you get up here, I mean, when we started the church, it was just over and over and over and over again. God just had to humble me. And I've said it twice already in this interview. God is so gracious. He just he just is. He's a, a wonderful shepherd. And he knows exactly what we need. And just slowly but surely, God was removing that pride. And he was he was showing me that that I'm not the one who builds the church that it's God who builds the church. That's such a simple principle, and we know that. I mean, Jesus gave the promise. He said that, I will build my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But what, what the Lord helped me with is, is this, that if I'm the one to build the church, then it's not his. Oh, again. <laughs> all right. Uh, I don't know what happened there. Did what? Did you hear all that, or wh- where was it? Where did it drop off there? Um, right before you said, "Can you hear me? Can you hear me?" Like about probably five, six okay. seconds right before that, it cut out, so it didn't miss much. Okay, I'll reiterate that thought real quick, all and right. I'll just I'll go from there. All right. So what God taught me, one of the the main things that God has taught me through all of that is through that promise that Jesus is the one who builds his church. He said, I will build my church. He uses that possessive pronoun. It's his church. He builds his church. So if I'm the one to build the church, it's not his. He builds his church. And I had to learn that it is God alone who gives the increase. You can try and swell the church, and you'll be successful at it. But if you try to be the one to build the church, you'll fall flat on your face. And that is what I had to figure out. That is what I had to learn, that all the good ideas I might have had, and most of them were not good ideas. I just thought they were. But all of these revolutionary ideas that I thought would totally change and how people would see our ministry and overnight we'll just have everything we wanted and we'll, we'll be on full-time salary and – uh, we'll we'll have a house of our own, and we'll get a church building, and we'll have bus ministries running into the city, and, and I mean just all these things. Mm. And the vision is good, the motives are bad, and it's just all about me, 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 me. Build up self, build up self. And I think sometimes, if we're not careful, especially as younger guys, and I don't know, I, I assume you, you'll have a good amount of younger guys that, that listen to your podcast. And yes, let do. me just say this for their sake, because I, I level with you guys. I mean, we're in the same age bracket. Mm. We need to be careful of the toxic celebrity mentality. It is toxic. It is devastating yes, to sir. your ministry. When we're just trying to be big shots and we're trying to be the Bible signers. We're trying to be the so-and-so. We got the meetings, and we're preaching out, and we're doing this, and we've got all these. That stuff is so prideful and is so far from spirit-filled ministry. We shouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. We should get as far away from that as we possibly can. Whenever we come to a place where we start to think that we're somehow special and we're better than other people or somehow we're, we're superior or that we need to act superior – uh, you know, that that stuff's just not pleasing to God, and we, we see that what the Bible says, that a proud look 
It's an abomination to God. And pride is abominable to God. And for us to think, and you think about that, pride is abominable to God. It's an abomination. A haughty look. Now, what else is an abomination? Homosexuality. So you are guilty of an abomination. It's an equal sin to homosexuality. That it, it's it's wicked. It's it, it's it's an awful sin, and it's devastating. I would not say that. Obviously, it takes a certain amount of. You have to be degenerate more and more and more. So we understand that to get to a place where you fall into homosexuality. But God literally puts it on that same bracket of abominable. Whereas homosexuality is abominable to God, so is pride. Hmm. So is lying. And we have to understand, how could I ever expect God to work through me if I'm full of pride? Something that is detestable, something that is abominable to God. I can't. I can't. It's not I, but Christ that liveth within me. And that is what we have to do. We have to come to the place where we see it's not me. I don't build the church. I can plant. I can water. But God gives the increase. So, yes, let's let's build. Let's let's do what we can in our church as far as with our hands. Let's work. Um, let, let's clear the way for God to grow the church. I, I don't want to keep anything in my heart or I, I don't want to keep sin in my life. I don't want to have anything in the church that could hinder God from growing the church because of sinful motives or whatever it may be. But it is ultimately God who builds the church. So I'm not I'm not giving a caveat or a cop out. For us to just say, well, we don't go soul winning because God builds the church. We don't, you know, we, we don't try to reach people because God builds the church. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. We still have responsibility, but God is the one who who gives that increase. We we can sow, but what we reap is up to God. And and that's the thing. If there's no sowing, there's no reaping. And so we just need to do what we can do, and God does what he can do. And it's it's a lesson that I think we have to learn not just once and not even just twice, but three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. And honestly, man, I could just go on and on about all of the mm-hmm. lessons that God has taught. But I think one of the biggest ones is this, is just being humble and just realizing that it's not you, it's God. It's all God. God does the building. God does the saving. God is the one who grows those Christians. No matter how witty you may be, no matter how much charisma you may have listen it's it's all god and sometimes we put the emphasis on talent or on ideas or on method or on preference when the emphasis should be on whether or not we just have the hand of god on our lives whether or not we have the power of god on our lives i'm for ideas let me just say that i i i think Having good ideas is great. Let's share ideas. Let's talk about things that you do in your church and I. But the difference maker is not ideas. The difference maker is the power of God. That is the difference yes, maker. And if we don't have that, we have nothing. And if all you do is build a church off of good ideas, then you're no different than the business down the street from you. You're no different than corporate America. This is not a business. This is not an enterprise. This is God's church. 
and the economy is different. And it's, it's a matter of us realizing that if I don't get God in on this thing, I'm wasting my time. That's why you see so many different churches that God has really done great things through. Those pastors could not be any different from each other in personality, in skill set, in ideas. Some pastors are simple. Some are hyper-organizational. Some are type A. Some are type B. Yet God still does great things to them. Yes, why? It's because they have the power of God on their lives. That is it. Read about the read about Nehemiah. Read about Ezra. You know what you're going to see over and over and over again? They're going to say that this happened because the hand of God was good upon me. Amen. This happened because the hand of God. You'll see it over and over and over again. The hand of God. The hand of God. The hand of God. How was the temple rebuilt? The hand of God was good upon Ezra and Zerubbabel. How was the wall rebuilt? The hand of God was good on Nehemiah. That is how it happens. You have got to have the hand of God on your life, and that takes prayer. And that's really the, the main other lesson that I've learned is the importance of prayer and the necessity of prayer and ministry and submitting to God and, and living holy. And so, so those are really the two prominent things. Let me give you a book recommendation real quick for prayer, too. If you haven't sure. read Why Revival Tarries, you need to. It'll change. Yes, that is the best book I've ever read in my yeah, life outside of the Bible. I agree. I, re I reread that book um, almost every year, and and I'm planning on rereading it again this year. But but that's a great book that'll really help you see the power in prayer. And Leonard Ravenhill will just tear you up, man. He'll just yes. make you feel like oh. the biggest. In chapter one, you'll just want to quit. You'll feel like the biggest loser, but it's the kick in the rear end that you need. So if you, you know if there's anyone listening to this, you haven't read Why Revival Terry's, check it out, read it. It'll help you. It'll encourage you. So I know I have to admit there, the first time I read the book, I got about halfway through it and I had to put it down and quit because it was just so much and I had to start over a second time. <laughs> right, right. It took me two times reading it to finally finish it because it, it was it's a lot. But it's it's heavy. Though. Yeah, and, and I only think it's about like 120, 130 pages, something mm -hmm. like that. It's not long. But it's just so – I mean it's just one blow right after another, man. It's just no mercy. But it's, exactly. it's, it's what we need. We need to hear that. One of the most powerful things in that book that I cannot get away from is what George Whitfield said, that he has spent uh, sometimes days, even weeks in one place on his face in prayer, just murmuring mm -hmm. in prayer. You know, sometimes we – and I, I just preached at a Bible college recently. I told a bunch of the guys there – you know, we wake up and about 10 minutes before class in Bible college and, and we'll think, oh, you know, I'll read my Bible later and, and we go to class and we do our tests and we eat lunch and then we go to work and then we get home and we do our homework and then we go to bed. But revival's coming, right? But revival's mm -hmm. coming. It's, it's coming. Really, really. If George Whitfield, George Whitfield had to spend weeks days on his face in prayer for the fullness, the power of God, and you think somehow revival's going to come to you for your 10-minute prayer life, for your five-minute prayer life, that's not happening. It's not no. happening. Mm. There's a cost, and if we're not willing to pay the cost, man, then it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. we got to get back to the discipline of prayer, and that's just – that's how it is, and man, it's something that I, I am constantly trying to work on to be better at in prayer. Yeah. But, but just putting that emphasis there, if we're willing to fly across the country to go to conferences and meetings to get ideas on church growth and this and that, but we're not willing to spend 30, 40, 50, an hour maybe in our prayer closet just praying for the power of God in our lives, then we're hopeless. 
we're hopeless. We need to be willing to spend adequate time in prayer, begging for the power of God on our lives, staying pure, living pure, and walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Without that, we're hopeless. We don't, we don't see any chance of revival.